0: This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley, and we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, the President Emerita of Spelman College, by the way, just ranked number one by U.S. News and World Report as the best HBCU in the country. And you've already said, Dr. Tatum, that makes you so proud. You spent what? How many years were you at Spelman? 13 years and just share with our audience, although they should already know, what are two things about which you are most proud from your tenure there?
1: Well, Spelman is a fabulous institution, and of course, the accomplishments of our graduates make you very proud. I can't take credit for this, but I'm gonna lift up the name of Rosalind Brewer, for example, who just was appointed the president and chief operating officer of Starbucks. Um, And of course, that's a wonderful accomplishment, and she is a Spelman graduate one of many that we could brag about. But certainly during my time at Spelman, one of the things that I was very excited to um, emphasize was the importance of a global experience. We were grateful to receive a large gift, a $17 million gift that allowed us to endow an initiative focused on global education. And Our goal was that every Spelman student would have a meaningful international experience before she graduated, because we wanted our students to see themselves as global citizens and to know that anywhere in the world is a place where Spelman women can be. And I'm delighted that by the time I left, we were just about at that goal, where almost all of our students were having that experience.
0: And not only is Rosalind Brewer the uh, great opportunity, but she is not only the first woman To hold that position but she is also the first woman of color to hold that position so indeed claim her every single day talk about how when you wrote why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria
1: what made you do it and how did you attack such a complex subject sure well when I was a professor of psychology living in Massachusetts I was doing research on the experiences of black youth who had grown up in predominantly white communities. Perhaps that's no surprise. Since I myself was in that situation, I was very interested in what other young people had experienced. And so I wrote a book earlier. My very first book was called Assimilation Blues, Black Families in White Communities. And I was invited often to speak at schools that were in the process of desegregation. In the Northeast, there are a lot of schools, particularly in Massachusetts, that are largely white but participate in a busing program where kids from Boston—it's a voluntary program—where kids, black kids from Boston, were being bused into suburban white communities. And I would be invited to those schools to talk about what kinds of concerns often arose when you have a small number of black children in a predominantly white school. And It would often be the case that I would walk into such a building and the principal or somebody else would say, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And usually it was said with the kind of concern that suggested they wish they could somehow interrupt that. And one of the things that I wanted educators to understand is that when teenagers choose to sit with other kids or having a similar experience, in this case black kids sitting with other black kids, all of whom are in this predominantly white environment, they are sitting together in part because they're having a shared experience. And it's a way of affirming their identities. As in adolescence, who you are and how you're perceived by others is so critical. We all know teenagers are very self-conscious and they're thinking a lot about their identities in various ways. And so it's not an uncommon thing to see that happen. And as I wanted to highlight for educators, and parents as well, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It is important for us to help young people learn how to connect across lines of difference, but we also need to understand that times when you can connect with someone who really understands your experience because they're having it too is also a value. So because I was getting this question so often, I wanted to write about it as well as other ways that race shapes our interactions, which is why the title is And Other Conversations About Race because we, I wanted to answer the very the title question, but I also wanted to talk about some other things.
0: And what are some of the other conversations that you tackle in the book?
1: One of the conversations is how to talk to young children about race. We know that young children as early as two and three notice physical difference. They comment on it. And many parents don't know how to answer their questions, or they're hesitant to answer their questions. So often they just say, shh, rather than, trying to give an explanation to a child who notices and says, let's imagine a child says, why is that person so dark? Or, you know, why is Tommy's hair so short? You know, how come it's not like mine? Those kinds of questions are common, and they can be answered in a very forthright and non-controversial way, but many parents don't feel they have the language, and I tried to provide lots of examples in that particular chapter. But I also wanted to talk about the experiences of not just black youth or white youth. There's a significant section of the book that talks about issues that are important to Latinx youth or Asian-American youth or Native American youth. There are so many uh, concerns in our society that impact how young people think about themselves and others. And I wanted to put some of those conversations on the table.
0: Largely because their parents didn't have those conversations with their parents
1: when they were children. The silence is intergenerational for sure. So how
0: do you change that?
1: Well, one of the things that I think is really important and I try to emphasize in the book, particularly toward the end of the book, is the importance that each person can play. You know, we each have a sphere of influence. We were talking a little bit about that earlier. Each of us has the opportunity to influence certainly our family members, our friends, our coworkers. We all have circles of influence. And when we think about... How we go about making change, I think the most effective way is in those person-to-person relationships, not so much because you want everybody to like you or you want to have more friends, but when people have an understanding of what the real issues are and how those issues are impacting people they care about, it moves them to action. And at the end of the day, I think dialogue that leads to action is what we need to make a difference.
0: Race influences politics, whether we want to admit it or not, and there are some on the right who argue that it is inappropriate, not right, not fair, pointless to, for the left to argue gender politics, race politics, identity politics, because there's a perception that we are in a post-racial America because of our previous president, Barack Obama. I bet you'd argue that is not the case.
1: I would argue that is not the case, though certainly, you know, when President Obama was elected in 2008, the uh, USA Today did a poll um, the weekend after the election. And 67% of the people who responded said they were feeling pride about the fact that the nation had elected an African-American president, that it said something very positive about the state of race relations. even though they themselves might not have voted for him. At the same time, the day after that election was the largest rise in participation on a um, a website called stormfront.org, which is a white supremacist site, and they saw the biggest jump in their registrations the day after President Obama's election. So this is to say... Yes, there was a sense of hopefulness about race. On the other hand, there was a strong backlash against um, President Obama's election, and we could all point to examples of the way that backlash has manifested itself. But I think perhaps the most clear-cut example of how we are not living in a post-racial society would be the proliferation of police shootings that we've experienced. The number of videotaped or cell phone recorded um, shootings of unarmed black men and women is just, you know, so disheartening. And and the response to that, um, those shootings, I think, makes clear that we are not in a post-racial society. Is it your opinion that
0: the criticism of former President Obama for not being what people might have expected of him as America's first black president um, is fair, that he should have done more? Well, I mean, I wonder I wonder what more could he have done?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, um, and that's a hard question for me to answer. You know, clearly that, um, that job is an overwhelming one. You have a lot of constituents to try to address. You know, my own experience as president of a college doesn't compare to the experiences of the president of the United States, but I can say when you're in a leadership seat, it's hard to make everyone happy. <laughs> I can say I can tell you that from personal experience. So that said, I think it's imp- one of the things that I appreciated very much about President Obama's leadership was his con- his language. Um, when we look at how um, words matter, you know, words matter, and when you use words that include people and that affirm people and try to bring people together, it sets a tone that is important. Um, Part of the challenge we have right at this moment is that the language we hear is so often not inclusive, um, more likely to be divisive, and that sets a different kind of tone. One of the things that the Southern Poverty Law Center um, has documented in the years, the days, months, since the November election, 2016, has been the rise in verbal harassment and sometimes physical violence um, for people of color who have been targeted, um, not just African-Americans, but we can talk about um, undocumented or people who are suspected as being, being harassed, suspected as being undocumented workers. Often those are Latinx people or people who are perceived as Muslim, um, and the harassment and physical violence that's been directed toward them. I think it's really... Um, Certainly the president's
0: pardoning earlier this year of Sheriff Joe Arpaio speaks to the, the point you're trying to make.
1: Absolutely. I mean, those the when you are in a leadership seat, what you say, what you do, is magnified by the importance of the role you're in. Um, when I was a college president... I, someone told me once, when you speak, it's like you're speaking through a megaphone. And uh, and certainly that's true for the president of the United States. So I think it becomes very, very important what you say and how you say it in order to create a sense of community where everyone feels included.
0: All along, people of color have known that there are groups not supportive of them Hate groups, white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, we've talked a bit about that in the hour, uh, have existed and have been around since the very beginning. Are you at all surprised or concerned at how, especially after Charlottesville, those protesters were so okay with marching in the open without their faces being covered?
1: You know, I thought that was really uh, very interesting because certainly there has been some negative consequences for people who did. You know, people who were captured on video, uh, engaged in violent acts, have been arrested. People who were captured on video just marching have lost jobs. Um, it's It does leave one shaking her head. <laughs> I'm, let me just say, it leaves me shaking my head about... About that. On the one hand, you know, I if, if you feel that strongly, you should be out in the open. You know, it's, I think, cowardly to cover your head. Um, but it certainly leaves me wondering why so many people have such animus.
0: When you see so many young faces, what does that say to you about what children are being taught in their homes? When you look at the millennials, where you have so many people who today identify as as multiracial, where you have more interracial marriages in the United States than in, in our, at any point in our history, when you get the sense perhaps that maybe the next generation will be better than and not deal with many of the struggles that, that current generations have. What are your thoughts there?
1: Well, it's interesting that you should ask that question because in my book, there is some discussion of Millennial attitudes, actually quite a lot of discussion of millennial attitudes. And one of the studies I cite in the book is a survey that was done by MTV. Um, They surveyed a thousand representative sample of a thousand fourteen to twenty four year olds. Um, I believe the survey was done in 2014. And one of the things that was striking was that on the one hand, millennials said that they felt everyone, you know, ninety one percent said people should be treated equally, you know, should be treated fairly. They were believing in the equality of human beings in that sense. On the other hand, a high, very high percentage of them had witnessed uh, instances of bias. Um, They were close to 90 percent said that they had seen uh, someone being treated unfairly because of their identity in some way. And yet, Only 20% felt comfortable talking about those incidents. And I think the silence, I'm going to come back to this point again, the silence we have around talking about race leaves people confused and uncertain as to how to move forward. I was really moved by an essay I read. It was an open letter posted on the web um, by a parent of one of those young marchers in Charlottesville. This father wrote about the fact that his son's attitudes did not represent the beliefs of his family, and he essentially denounced his son for participating in this activity. But one of the things he said, which I thought was quite um, important to lift up, was that he regretted that they hadn't talked more about these issues at home. He said, you know, our son didn't learn this hate at home these are not our values. We don't support this white supremacist activity. We wish he would uh, detach himself from it. But he also said, but we were silent. And in our silence, a vacuum was created. Um, though These are my words, not his. But you know, when parents don't really talk explicitly about what their values are, you leave open a space for other people's values to come in. And I think that it comes back to the importance of having these conversations at home, at church, at school, in the workplace, um, if we're going to heal the rifts of racial and racism in our society, racial division and racism in our society.
0: So who do you want to read the new updated version of your book?
1: I hope many people will read it. Um, Certainly parents, educators have historically been uh, the folks who have found my book useful to them as they think about working with children, their own or other people's, but I think anyone who sees him or herself in a leadership role should read it because I think leaders really need to understand racial identity, how it plays itself um, in its interactions with, how we interact with each other in the context of a racist society, and ultimately what we can do to bridge racial differences.
0: If you were going to challenge Anyone listening to our conversation today to begin a self examination or to ask themselves to consider seriously the attitudes that they have about race and ethnicity and representation, how would you want that person to begin? What would you want them to do?
1: I would, again, urge them to read the book. And I say that because sometimes we're not, we don't know what we don't know right you know so someone might say you know i don't have any biases i don't have negative attitudes i don't hate other people and that could well be true but when you read about the ways in which messages have been conveyed assumptions are built into our society people start to think oh you know i did have that experience you know i i have felt that awkwardness i do sometimes you know avoid Engaging with other people because I'm not sure what to say. And so I think that there's my hope is that there's something for everyone to learn Regardless of how you identify whether you identify as a white person or a person of color um, I think there is something for everyone in the book and it and I have found in my own life Reading is a great way to get an introduction to something even when you think you know about it already What surprised you most about your new research? gosh um, one of the things that surprised me was the changing demographic. You know, I mean, I live in Atlanta and I walk around and we certainly have a diverse community. But when I reflected on just that data point, you know, in 1954, the year I was born, the U.S. was 90 percent white. And today, school age children, 50 percent of them are kids of color. That's a big change. And uh, you don't always see it. But I think it's a very meaningful change, and it speaks to the fact that if we are going to have a positive future going forward in the United States, we need to both affirm and support the education of all of our children, and we need to be sure that all of our children understand how to engage with each other in productive ways. There's so many people today,
0: Dr. Tatum, who are discouraged about our future in light of current events and headlines. What hope can you share with the audience?
1: Well, the last part of my book um, is an epilogue, and it's titled Signs of Hope, Sites of Progress. And I really wanted to include some of the places where I have seen progress being made or hopeful things happening because it is easy to be discouraged. And yet there are communities, colleges and universities, universities, citizens like the two gentlemen I mentioned who started the Atlanta Friendship Initiative, who are using their initiative to take action in ways that make our society better. It is possible for all of us to do that. I understand why sometimes people feel discouraged and I, I work hard at maintaining hopefulness in my life. Um, But what I like to say is in times of darkness, we all have to generate more light. And so I think each of us needs to think about what can I do? You know, better to light one candle than curse the darkness. How can I light a candle in a way that will improve my community? Tell us about this talk that you're giving on Tuesday night with uh, Gail O'Neill, I believe it is. Yes. So I will be at the Atlanta History Center talking about my book uh, in conversation with Gail O'Neill. And for people who are wanting to learn more about the book or just ask questions, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions. Um, I look forward to seeing them at the Atlanta History Center.
0: And around town, I know you speak nationally and you are a, a global expert on this matter. But if there are listeners, churches, organizations, people who want to begin to have this conversation don't know how to get started. I know you're an expert in this field. How do they contact you?
1: Well, the best way to contact me is via email, um, and my email address is btatum at spelman.edu. I still use my Spelman address, and I'm also on Twitter, bdtspelman, at bdtspelman.
0: Dr. Beverly Tatum, President Emeritus, Spelman College. The book is, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? and Other Conversations About Race. Originally written in 1997, updated with new research and new thoughts. 20 years later, available in stores now. Dr. Tatum, this has been quite an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for spending time with us.
1: Thank you so much, Condis, it's been a pleasure.
0: Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.